From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies, in for Terry Gross. Today, we remember George Floyd as we approach the second anniversary of his murder. We'll speak with Washington Post reporters Robert Samuels and Tolu Olorunipa. They argue that George Floyd's struggles in life reflect the challenges and pressures of institutional racism in the country. Their new book is His Name is George Floyd. Also, we hear about the Women's House of Detention, the forgotten women's prison in Greenwich Village that played a role in the gay rights movement of the 60s, including the Stonewall Uprising. Angela Davis and Afini Shakur, Tupac's mother, were incarcerated there. We'll talk with Hugh Ryan, whose new book is about what this prison tells us about queer history. And David Cooley will review the new HBO documentary, George Carlin's American Dream. Next Wednesday marks the second anniversary of the death of George Floyd, who was said to have told a friend when he was a teenager that one day he wanted to touch the world. Sadly, it was not his life, but his murder by police officer Derek Chauvin that touched off a wave of massive protests for racial justice and sparked an ongoing national conversation about race in America. While much is known about George Floyd's death, our guests, Washington Post reporters Robert Samuels and Tolu Oloronipa, believe we can learn a lot by looking at his life. Their new book examines Floyd's 46 years on earth in detail, drawing on hundreds of interviews and a trove of public and private records, including diary entries, rap lyrics, poems, medical records, historical documents, cell phone videos, social media postings, arrest reports, court documents, job applications, text messages, love letters, and more. The book is a portrait of a black man raised in poverty who, the authors argue, found his opportunities and aspirations limited at every turn by the legacy of slavery and ongoing institutional racism. Robert Samuels is a national enterprise reporter for The Post. Tolu Olorunipa is a political enterprise and investigations reporter at The Post and also an on-air contributor to CNN. Their new book is His Name is George Floyd. Well, Robert Samuels, Tolu Olorunipa, welcome to Fresh Air. George Floyd is a name everyone knows, and of course it was his tragic murder, not his life, that touched off this movement that had such enormous reach and impact. Why did you want to tell the story of his life in such detail? Well, we wanted readers to understand that the battle for George Floyd to breathe in America started long before he ever even encountered Derek Chauvin. So what we did was we talked to everyone we could possibly talk to, from his siblings to some of his teachers as early as second grade, to his coaches, his lovers, his for best friends, to get a sense of not just who George Floyd was, but all of the systems that he interacted with and how the legacy of institutional racism shaped his life and in a lot of cases hindered that ambition. We believed that if we did that, not only could we tell a story about who George Floyd is, but we'd also get a sense of who we are as a society. And we can begin to explore the questions about what race and racism cannot just do to a person, but to all of those folks who are moved and had questions about George Floyd after he died. You know, as I prepared for our interview, uh, I will say this is a really absorbing read. Um, There's so much here. And it occurred to me that given how passionate people feel about his life and the issues, that some were going to hear us and 
we're not going to cover everything, and some may be angry about what we include or don't include in this interview. And this is this is something that I'm sure you and your editors confronted as you wrote the book. Any words to listeners or readers about that subject, <laughs> about what they think they deserve to get and don't get? Well, I would I would say to readers that we are journalists. We have a task and a calling to find out the truth. Um, we happen to be black men as well, um, and we have a certain understanding of some of the things that George Floyd faced uh, as he was coming up in the world, but we did not shy away from his mistakes, from his troubles, from his shortcomings. He also didn't shy away from those mistakes. He openly acknowledged them. He shed tears over them. He agonized over them in his own writings that we got access to, and we go into everything. Absolutely. And when we think about journalism, I think our North Stars are empathy and the truth. And when we went about reporting this book, that's what we were thinking about. We were thinking about properly contextualizing the life of a man and understanding that complication does not make anyone less of a man or less important to read about. A lot of people on Twitter have talked to us and they've said, why are you talking about this guy? He was no saint. But I think it's important to remind people that this movement wasn't started because of the death of a saint. It was started because of the death of a man. George Floyd was born in North Carolina and his mother uh, eventually divorced George's father, George Floyd Sr. And they moved to Houston with uh, Felonis Hogan, who was uh, her partner at the time. George, so George grew up in Houston at the, from the age of seven or so, lived in a public housing project. You want to describe the family's neighborhood, what kind of life they had there? Yeah, I can describe the, the CUNY Homes housing project. It's the largest housing project in Houston. It was created back in the 1940s at a time when uh, federal housing projects were just really getting underway. And at the time it was created, it was created to be housing specifically for African-American residents in Houston as the city was trying to segregate itself in a, in a deeper way. Uh, fast forward 40 years when the Floyds moved there in the 1980s, and it's still 99% black, it's still segregated, even though you know housing segregation has been outlawed by this, the Congress in civil rights laws. And it's a sign of the kind of enduring segregation that uh, has lasted uh, into the 21st century in this country. Now, George Floyd grew up in a community that not only was all black, but was also impoverished and was neglected by the government. And it was a place where you know people grew up watching each other's children, and there was a strong community bond. But in part because of the divestment and uh, redlining and a number of different housing policies that took place over the course of several decades. It was a place that was where almost everyone who was uh, growing up there lived in poverty. And when you have that kind of concentrated poverty, it's very difficult to see a way out. You interviewed a lot of friends of his, and I think a second grade teacher. Uh, what did you learn about what kind of kid he was? Well, what we learned from... Miss Sexton, his second grade teacher, she was a white woman from a border town between rural Texas and Oklahoma. And she was sent to Third Ward, that's the ward that hosts the CUNY homes, uh, to teach as a part of a teacher corps program. What she remembers about George Floyd was that he was an invested student. He believed in the power of education. Now, he loved to run and jump and play outside like every other boy. But there's one thing that really struck me about what she said. She had these records. 
And in the records, it showed that George Floyd, at the end of second grade, he was reading at grade level. His math skills were at grade level, which is a pretty big accomplishment if you're growing up in a neighborhood as depressed and under-resourced as CUNY Homes. It was a pretty big achievement. And what that showed to us was there is a big question about what happened, how a person who started with all this ambition ended up in a place where he could not graduate high school on time. You write about the school and how school segregation in Texas was a very real thing at the time and how steps were taken to subvert the intent of the Brown versus Board of Education system. It was not a great school system. Um, George Floyd was a big guy, right, and an athlete. Um, what was he like as an athlete? Yeah, we got to speak to a lot of the people who went to high school with George Floyd, and uh, it was very clear that as soon as he walked into the halls of Jack Gates High School, which was a school that was another place that was originally created for uh, seg segregation and for African-American students and remained segregated even after Brown versus Board of Education, that you know people saw George Floyd and they said, this is someone who is going to succeed on the sports field. Let's not focus so much on the schooling part of it because this is a, a school that is under-resourced and you know the people that are successful from this school are successful because of sports. When Floyd entered high school, there were three players on the Chicago Bears who were alumni of his high school. And the Chicago Bears had a 53-member roster. And if you have three players from the same high school, it shows you sort of the dominance of the high school tradition uh, of sports at Jack Yates. And, you know, Floyd entered school and he saw his body and he saw what people were telling him and he decided to focus on trying to make it as a sports player, as a football player. And um, that led to him, you know, falling behind on the academic front, um, in part because uh, there was so much focus on sports. Um, but he was a successful football player. His team went to the state championship and he helped them get there. And he, he was successful in that game, even though they didn't end up prevailing. But it was very clear, and readers will see this in, in the book, how quickly those dreams of success on the sports field were uh, derailed in part because of his shaky education. He was not able to graduate high school on time, and the dream of getting a, a scholarship to a big uh, college was really cut short in part because he didn't have the academic record to sustain that kind of dream. Robert Samuels and Tolu Olinaripa are Enterprise reporters for The Washington Post. Their new book is His Name is George Floyd. We'll hear more of our conversation after a break, and David Cooley will review the new HBO documentary about George Carlin. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the John Templeton Foundation, who believes in advancing humanity's understanding of the profound questions in life. Funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder since 1987. The John Templeton Foundation is proud to support leading scientists, philosophers, and theologians from around the world. Learn about the latest discoveries related to black holes, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org. We're speaking with Washington Post reporters Robert Samuels and Tolu Olunaripa. Robert Samuels is a national enterprise reporter for The Washington Post. Tolu Olunaripa is a political enterprise and investigations reporter at The Post and an on-air contributor to CNN. Their new book is His Name is George Floyd. Um, George Floyd uh, wanted to be a pro football player. He 
the academics got in the way. He got, I think he got a basketball scholarship to a small college in South Florida and then ended up at Texas A&I University, a small college in South Texas. In the end, had to let it go. Uh, he gave up on that. Was that a big turning point in his life when he kind of, he was, I guess, 24 by that point, let, decided he wasn't going to make it as an athlete and he had to set a new course? Yes. When George Floyd had to return home from college, what you saw was the disintegration of a dream, right? And you also have to understand that for someone like George Floyd, this is the dissolution of an American promise, right? He was in school, and they told him this was the way to escape poverty. This was the way to create a new path for his family. And at the same time, that same school system did not allow him, did not provide him the necessary skills to even make it through college, to prepare him for that next step. And so when he returns to Houston and goes back to his home where his mother has fallen ill, uh, he has some choices he needs to make. He has to figure out how to provide for his family, including the nieces and nephews that we had spoken about before. But he also has to figure out what his purpose in life is and how he can have a life that's purposeful, and if not a life that's purposeful, a life that's sufficient enough so that there can be food on the table. His first drug arrest was in 1997, you write, uh, selling crack to an undercover officer. And, you know, we, we know that he would struggle with drug use for the rest of his life. What did you learn about how he got involved with um, using drugs in addition to selling them to, to make money? Uh, well, one of the first things that I, I want to mention is sort of how um, ubiquitous the police were during the crackdown. In the Third Ward and specifically in the CUNY Homes Housing Project, police were, were everywhere. Um, it was the time of you know, the beginning of the, the process of mass incarceration and the war on drugs and the efforts that were being made. And we spoke to former police chiefs that were working uh, the beat at the time. Essentially, their their mission was to get drugs off the street um, and to arrest people who were being seen as, uh, drug, you know, possessing drugs, selling drugs. And uh, Floyd got caught up in, in that um, in that system. He was arrested multiple times um, over the course of his, of his life. And we actually documented um, at least six of the police officers that he encountered over his life were later charged with um, crimes of their of their own uh, including the the officers that uh, were part of his his death uh, one of the things we we note in the book is the um, statistics that show that drug use uh, among uh, black Americans and, and white Americans and, and uh, Americans of various backgrounds are relatively similar. But when it comes to the arrest records, when it comes to the the, the consequences of um, you know of, of possessing drugs, um, it's a much more disproportionate uh, impact when it comes to the black community. And Floyd felt that and he experienced that. Uh, most of his arrests were for uh, petty drug possession, and that's something that you rarely see in other communities. But because police had this mission to target the community that he came from, uh, he was an easy target. 
You have a lot of interesting material here about the trial, preparing for the trial, about the protests and how they grow. One of the things that I found interesting was that members of the George Floyd family, and there were some in Houston and there were some in North Carolina, as well as a network of friends in Minneapolis and and in Texas, they were grieving, but suddenly they were thrust into the vortex of this huge movement of protest and activism. I mean, celebrities wanted to talk to them, and I'm that was difficult for them. Um, and Philonis, his brother, uh, kind of became one of the more visible members of the family. There were some interesting moments. You write, for example, about his phone call from President Trump. Tell us about that. All these people are trying to get in contact with the Floyd family in the days after George Floyd was murdered. And the interaction with President Trump, as uh, Filonis recalls it, is that it was very abrupt. President Trump continued to talk. Filonis could hardly get a word in. And he really wanted to say, get justice for my brother. I can't believe I just saw a modern-day lynching. But the words could not get out of his mouth. And it felt to him that President Trump couldn't get off the phone call fast enough. He had many contacts with President Biden. I mean, there were phone calls, there were in-person meetings. The family was invited to the White House. Um, What can you tell us about those interactions? There was a sense that, you know, with Biden's election after Floyd's death, Biden making much of his campaign about this idea that the country needs to, needed to heal and uh, bring about racial justice. He chose the first African-American uh, woman to be his vice president. And there was a sense that there was momentum, that something would happen that would be able to honor George Floyd's name uh, and his legacy through a policing reform bill that the family had gotten behind. Um, And there was a time when President Biden spoke before Congress and said that he wanted to sign that bill on the first anniversary of Floyd's death in May of 2021. And there was a time when it seemed like that might be possible. And we were able to interview President Biden for this book and and get a sense for his you know, goal of wanting to be able to sign that bill. Now, in hindsight, a year later, we know that that bill was not signed. We know that instead there was a backlash against uh, the idea that police reform needed to happen. There was a push against even the idea of discussing race in schools, and books began to get banned and whatnot. And we're able to chronicle that. And um, between President Biden and the Floyd family, there is sort of this, this, this souring of this idea of being able to all come together and get them on Air Force One and fly to sign this this bill on the first anniversary. And this has become just another political fight uh, in which there's a stalemate and nothing gets done. And that's something that, that the, the family uh, ha- has been pretty upset about and pretty understandably um, distraught over that even though it seemed like there was this momentum and that something would happen to honor Floyd's legacy and to make sure that this kind of thing did not happen again, um, all of that seemed to have evaporated very quickly. Um, Again, I'll just note that there's a lot in this book that I think is worth people reading. We can't get to all of it. But I thought we'd close with a question that's a big one, but invite your comment. You know, um, there was this bill in Congress that the Floyd family hoped would be enacted, which would have some... Major reforms on police, that didn't happen. Some states and cities did things. Um, Obviously, the protests had a wider impact on all of us. As you reflect on it, um, what were the most important impacts of George Floyd's life and death? 
That's such an important and insightful question, and I could spend quite a long time talking about it. But um, one of the things I think we can reflect on two years later after George Floyd died is that the country is different. The conversations about race are different. There is an understanding that institutional racism does exist. Now, there is a resistance to that that we're seeing uh, live and, and we're seeing it play out. But I think people are understanding that what black people have been complaining about for years uh, is real in, in a, a very real sense, that there is uh, a systemic nature to some of the the, the, the racism that uh, George Floyd faced and that so many millions of people like him face. And there has been an effort, I don't want to downplay the, the measures that have been taken both in the corporate world and um, in local communities with local laws to change some of that, to change the way policing works, to change the way systemic racism operates. Um, that is ongoing. Uh, there There's a pushback. There's always a sense that the fight will continue, that it will never be over. Um, but I do think the country has uh, has shifted uh, its its view and it's realized that a lot of the things that were being complained about and the things that were being raised as issues that need to be changed uh, have been acknowledged. And that's something that uh, is part of George Floyd's legacy. Well, Robert Samuels, Tolu Olorunipa, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Dave. Thanks. Really appreciate it. Robert Samuels is a national enterprise reporter for The Washington Post. Tolu Olorunipa is a political enterprise and investigations reporter at The Post and an on-air contributor to CNN. Their new book is His Name is George Floyd. HBO's new four-hour documentary, George Carlin's American Dream, premiered Friday and is now streaming on HBO Max. It's a film by Judd Apatow and Michael Bonfiglio, and our TV critic David Cooley says it's perfect thought-provoking, insightful, revelatory, and at times very funny. Here's his review. Judd Apatow, a stand-up comedian turned film writer and director, already has made one stellar biography about a comic for HBO, The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling, in 2018. Now, he and co-director Michael Bonfiglio have made another. By following, in minute detail, a comedian's process progress, and personal triumphs and demons. George Carlin's American Dream is astoundingly thorough in both the ground it covers and its approach. Archival sources, audio tapes, home movies, old TV show clips from Mike Douglas and Dinah Shore to Merv Griffin and Tony Orlando are plentiful and used well. Intimate details of George Carlin's personal life are revealed in old and new interviews with some of those who truly knew him best, his brother Patrick, his first wife Brenda, and his daughter Kelly. All of them look at George's life and their own with the objective honesty that George eventually brought to his stand-up act. And while we learn of George's abusive father and oppressive mother— and of George and Brenda's descent into drugs and alcoholism, respectively, we also learn about what drove George Carlin to keep developing and altering his approach to comedy. In audio tapes recorded for his autobiography, Last Words, Carlin explains his disdain for authority figures in almost clinically detached terms. My own experience of authority is one of opposition to not just questioning authority but actively opposing it and trying to undo what it had in mind everything that had rules and regulations i managed to either get kicked out of or leave early on my own 
the choir, the altar boys, the Boy Scouts, summer camp, and schools. The first half of this excellent HBO documentary follows George Carlin's many evolutionary stages, providing clear samples of each. Stage one arrives in 1957, when at age 18, young George joins the Air Force. He lands a part-time job as a disc jockey in Louisiana, using the kind of on-air voice and persona he would later make fun of. 18 minutes before 5 o'clock, and this is music from Carlin's Corner, and that ain't half of it. $30 in the Lucky License jackpot, a call going out soon. Coming up, Warren Storm with Trouble. I got trouble, troubles, troubles. He forms a two-man comedy team with Jack Burns, and they move to California. The duo breaks up after only a few months, but Carlin stays put, pursuing his interest in comedy. He's in the audience of a Lenny Bruce show on one of the nights Bruce gets arrested. And Carlin gets arrested, too, out of solidarity. His own onstage comedy, then, in nightclubs and on TV, is mainstream and conventional. Until suddenly, it isn't, when he starts to introduce such counterculture concepts and characters as TV's obviously drugged-out, hippy-dippy weatherman. Okay, the radar's picking up a line of thunder showers from Utica, New York, to Middletown. However, the radar is also picking up a squadron of Russian ICBMs. Uh, I wouldn't sweat the thunder showers. <laughs> Tonight's low, 25 degrees. Tomorrow's high whenever I get up. Ah. As the 60s progresses and Carlin decides to talk about issues more directly, he refocuses his energies. He starts booking appearances almost exclusively on college campuses, where the students would be more receptive to his new material. His beard and his hair get longer, and his comedy routines get more topical. As when heavyweight champion Muhammad Ali's conscientious objection to the Vietnam War has him stripped of his title for several years, before finally being allowed to step back into the ring. George Carlin, talking outdoors to a small college crowd, sees more than a little irony in that whole situation. Hey, they're letting Ali fight. He happened to lose, but at least they're letting him work again, right? For three years, the cat couldn't work, Muhammad Ali. Uh, and of course, he had an unusual job beating people up, you know? <laughs> but the government wanted him to change jobs. The government wanted him to kill people. <laughs> he said, no, that's where I draw the line. I'll beat him up, but I don't want to kill him, you know? And the government got spiteful. They said, look, if you won't kill him, we won't let you beat him up. From there, George Carlin's comedy routines get more dense, more bold, and more obsessed with the poetry, meanings, and impact of language. All this leads to such uncensored comedy albums as Class Clown, put out, I learned in this documentary, by a record label owned by another groundbreaking comedian, Flip Wilson. That album includes his infamous seven dirty words routine, which identifies and talks about the seven words you can't say on television. When New York radio station WBAI played parts of that routine, it was objected to by an outraged parent tuning in, leading to a court case pitting the FCC against the corporate owners of the radio station. It was a free speech case, FCC versus the Pacifica Foundation, that went all the way to the Supreme Court. The court voted in favor of the FCC in what basically was a blow against free speech. 
Carlin wasn't saying those words for shock value. He was talking about their usage and symbolism and why they had been given such power. Many young George Carlin listeners recognized the subtleties in the issue and the comedy routine that the Supreme Court had not, and some of them grew up to also become comedians obsessed with words. One of those youngsters was Stephen Colbert, who later became a household name because of such self-created words as truthiness. He was a giant George Carlin fan. Is that he's the Beatles of comedy. At a certain point in his career, there's this huge shift. You know, he's doing the comedic version of Love Me Do for the first part of his career, and then suddenly he puts out the comedic White Album. Another major George Carlin enthusiast was Jerry Seinfeld, who also, like Carlin, delighted in questioning the accepted norms around him and using precise language to do so. He personified that thing that you see when you're young and you go, that, that's it, that's the thing, that's the thing to be. And I wanted to be just like him, getting every word in the right spot. Uh, because when he did it, it thrilled me, you know, and, and I wanted to do that. I wanted that skill and I've spent my life uh, pursuing it. The first night of George Carlin's American Dream follows his rise to stardom, his Seven Dirty Words controversy, and his counterculture coronation as the very first guest host on the premiere episode of Saturday Night Live. It ends, though, with Carlin seemingly on the wane, no longer in touch or in vogue. But he was determined to change and rise again by being even truer to himself and his opinions. In part two of American Dream, and for the rest of his life, George Carlin did exactly that. David Biancooley is a professor of television studies at Rowan University in New Jersey. He reviewed George Carlin's American Dream. It's streaming on HBO Max. Coming up, we'll talk about a little-known chapter of LGBTQ history with Hugh Ryan, author of The Women's House of Detention. It's about a forgotten women's prison in Greenwich Village. This is Fresh Air Weekend. The next interview is Terry's. I'll let her introduce it. We're going to talk about a little-known chapter in LGBTQ history that is also an important chapter in the history of incarceration in America. My guest, Hugh Ryan, is the author of the new book, The Women's House of Detention, A Queer History of a Forgotten Prison. The House of D, as it was called, was located in Greenwich Village. The book tells the story of the cycle in which the prison contributed to Greenwich Village becoming a queer bohemian neighborhood, while the neighborhood contributed to the prison having a disproportionately large number of incarcerated lesbian and transmasculine people. In writing the history of the prison, Ryan also describes how women were punished for what was considered at the time to be gender nonconforming behavior, ranging from being a lesbian or transmasculine man to just wearing pants. The prison opened in 1932 in Greenwich Village, was shut down in 1972, and was demolished in 1974. Among the last prisoners there were Angela Davis and Afini Shakur, Tupac Shakur's mother. The prison also figures into the Stonewall Uprising and the founding of the Gay Liberation Front. Hugh Ryan is on the Board of Advisors for the Archives of the LGBT Center in Manhattan and the Stonewall National Museum and Archives in Fort Lauderdale. His previous book is titled When Brooklyn Was Queer. 
Hugh Ryan, welcome to Fresh Air. So let's start with the Stonewall Uprising. That's one of the turning points in LGBTQ history. It's considered the start of the modern gay rights movement. Police raided a gay bar in Greenwich Village, and the gay men fought back. And right across the street from Stonewall was the Women's House of Detention, the House of D. So how does the House of D figure into the Stonewall Uprising? In many ways, actually, one of the things that I was really shocked by was to find out that, as you said, the House of D is 500 feet from the Stonewall Inn. On the first night of the riots, people incarcerated in the prison could actually see what was happening out their windows. And they started a riot all their own, setting fire to their belongings and throwing them down to the streets below while chanting, gay rights, gay rights, gay rights. It's funny how the frame for Stonewall has narrowed so much that these people who were incarcerated and bravely standing up to guards and officers have been kind of knocked out of the story entirely. But some people do remember them and do talk about them. The author Rita Mae Brown always points out what happened in the prison that night. Arcus Flynn, who's a member of the Daughters of Belitis, talks about it in her oral histories. In all of these ways, we know that women and trans men were in the prison, resisting that night, encouraging what was happening on the street. And we also know from folks who were in and out of the prison, like activist Jay Toole, that many of the folks who were rioting on the first night, the second night, the third night, of Stonewall were folks who had been incarcerated in that prison or were in danger of being incarcerated there, homeless, queer street youth. The majority of the women in the House of Detention in the 1960s were queer. Um, Was that true through most of the history of the prison? It's hard to say exactly because statistics like that just aren't taken. But what we know is that by the 50s and 60s, incarcerated women and sociologists who are studying in the prison start to estimate that around 75% of the people incarcerated in the House of D are queer in some way. 75%. Now, we know from studies being done in the last decade that around 40% of people incarcerated in women's prisons today identify as queer, verbally identify as queer with relationships both before they entered prison, right? This has been going on for a long time, but we don't talk about it. What were some of the crimes that women were incarcerated for that wouldn't be considered crimes today? Almost exclusively, they were being arrested for what we would call crimes against public order. So uh, drunkenness, waywardism, disobedience to their parents, being out at night by themselves, wearing pants, accepting a date from a man, accepting a ride from a man. All of these things could have gotten you arrested if you were perceived as the quote-unquote wrong kind of woman. Uh, Wearing pants is a real mystery. Why were women arrested for wearing pants? And what were some of the circumstances? Do you know? Yeah, that law actually dates back to the mid-1800s. It was originally a law around... I'm sorry, is it actually a law? (laughs) (laughs) There is indeed. It's called the anti-masquerade law. It's still on the books, and it's still being used. Originally, it criminalized people who dressed in costumes to protest tax collectors, upstate farmers mostly. In the late 1800s, it starts to get used to target queer people, particularly those who are gender nonconforming in some way. Now, the law says it is 
only illegal to dress in a quote-unquote costume if you're in the act of committing another crime, right? If it's a disguise. But that's not how the law gets applied. In the 20th century, it gets used to target gay men, trans women, lesbians, trans men, anyone who dressed quote-unquote incorrectly for their gender. The law not only gets used then, but during Occupy Wall Street, that's the law that gets used to arrest protesters for wearing masks or other costumes while protesting. Now, you mentioned uh, waywardism was considered a crime. What did you have to do to qualify for being wayward and therefore subjected to penalties or incarceration? The first waywardism laws in New York State start in the 1880s, and they only apply to girls and women, originally ones who were arrested for prostitution, and then expanded greatly in the late 1800s to women who might become prostitutes. And that's where they really get into danger, right? Because suddenly the charge of prostitution has nothing to do with sex work or exchanging sex for money. Instead, a wayward girl is anyone who was thought to be improperly feminine to the point where she is an invitation to prostitution, right? She's either too sexual or she's too masculine and unable to get any other kind of job. So, of course, she's going to end up being a prostitute. Waywardism could be brought against you by the police, but also your parents could have you incarcerated for waywardism without ever being tried. The law didn't get applied to men and boys until the 1920s. Women have been vastly subjected to waywardism laws because they were seen as a threat to men. Women who were sexually active, who might be prostitutes, were likely to spread sexually transmissible infections in the eyes of the law. And so the waywardism law gets used over and over again to target all kinds of women, women who speak back to their parents, a lot of runaways get targeted under waywardism laws, anyone who's truant, perhaps, or anyone who shows sign of being a disobedient or masculine woman. There was a period where some of the uh, women had to wear a D for degenerate while they were in prison. When was that and who had to wear the D? That was in the 1960s. This is an interesting differentiation between men's experiences in prison and women's experiences in prison. In men's prisons, there's often a fairy wing where folks who we would call effeminate gay men, trans women, and people arrested for specifically gay crimes like soliciting or obscenity would be placed. They would be separated away from the rest of the population. And that wasn't anywhere near all the gay people in men's prisons, but it created kind of a different dynamic. This doesn't exist in women's prisons hardly at all for most of the time they exist. As one incarcerated woman from the House of D told me, there were simply too many of us. They couldn't segregate them out, but they did try sometimes. In the late 50s and early 1960s, they codified some laws inside the prison, some rules saying that any incarcerated woman who has a history of homosexuality should be placed in a cell by herself and all of the guards should be notified to it. And then in the mid-60s, early 60s, they do start putting Ds on the outfits of some of these women, generally the ones who are considered masculine. Uh, we might think of them today as butches or studs or trans men. It's hard to know exactly how they understood themselves, but they were considered too masculine and therefore a danger to other women. And they were often put into solitary confinement punishment cells just because they were known to be homosexual. So women were arrested for prostitution, uh, but not the men who paid the women, not the Johns. And, and you're right that one of the reasons why sex workers were arrested and, and 
kept in prison sometimes for a, you know a pretty long time was that they were considered vectors of disease that that might be spreading syphilis or gonorrhea, and they were often held until they were quote cured. But there really wasn't a cure during part of the prison's history because there weren't antibiotics yet. Um, so the women were considered vectors of disease, but the men weren't. I mean, sometimes it was the men who spread it to the women, and also if, uh, if a man caught it from one of the sex workers, and they were a, quote, vector of disease as well. The men were considered important, right? A lot of this stems from World War I and World War II. Uh, 1919 is actually a big year for what's called the American Plan. The American Plan was a nationwide initiative to arrest women and girls who were either sex workers or thought to be in danger of being sex workers in order to prevent disease being spread to members of the military during World War I. They knew that members of the military could be spreading those diseases themselves, but that didn't matter. The idea was to protect them so the women were the danger, and their health didn't matter either. Many of these women and girls who get arrested are incarcerated for months, sometimes cumulatively for years. Many of them were arrested, found to be innocent, and still kept in incarceration until they were quote-unquote cured. And as you said, the cures and the tests for these diseases back then were terrible. Mostly you were being pumped full of arsenic-related drugs or mercury-related drugs that didn't actually work very well and often made you very sick at the same time. This institution, the American plan, continues through the 19-teens, the 1920s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, some places up until the 1970s. And in a really ironic and dark twist, those drugs that do eventually start to work on gonorrhea and syphilis, the sulfa class of drugs that we developed during World War II, were tested non-consensually on incarcerated sex workers at the Women's House of Detention so that they could be used for soldiers in World War II. Were you constantly being shocked when you were doing the research for this book? Oh, absolutely. I think that's actually one of my favorite things about being a historian is that I come into it thinking something is important. I can see the outline of where it should be in our shared memory, but I don't know what I'm going to find. I try to keep that openness so I can follow the tracks as they appear in the records. But constantly, I was shocked to see the way in which our system of justice for women simply is unjust and different from the one we have for men. Women's incarceration is a different situation. It's not about crimes against people, like violence, and it's not about crimes against property, like theft. It's about social control. What was gay life like inside the women's prison? You know, a lot of the women are arrested for gender nonconforming behavior, which wasn't called that, of course, when they were arrested. But that was the gist of why many of them were in prison. Many of them were in prison for being sex workers. So for the women who were lesbians or started acting out that behavior that they felt they couldn't act on when they were outside of the prison. How capable were you in the prison of actually having a relationship? It depended on what you were there for, how long you were there for, and the time period you were there for. But 
at almost every time throughout the prison's history, the women and trans men that I can find say that it was the place where they met their lovers, where they had sex for the first time with another woman often, where they made relationships that were crucial to them. There are all of these strange ways that they found to make what was a terrible, cruel, violent, dangerous, lockdown place a haven for themselves in certain ways. I don't want to overplay it and say that the prison was this like great, amazing, utopian space, but these women and trans men found what joy and love they could. They did all of these creative things like you could only have two kinds of jewelry in the prison, a Christian cross or a Jewish star of David. In the 1960s, a social worker comes in and she's studying what she calls the play family, which really means lesbian relationships and the sort of extended familial structures that they built inside prisons, both the House of D and other ones around New York. And while she's studying these women, she at first thinks there is an unusually high number of black Jewish women in the prison before she starts talking to them and discovers that the Jewish star of David is a highly prized bit of jewelry for femme lesbians in the prison, particularly ones who aren't Jewish. And what she's actually seeing are all of these black women who are wearing stars given to them by their Jewish girlfriends. Little moments like that show us how widespread this resistance to the forced heterosexuality was. These women found all kinds of ways to meet each other. Let's talk about Afini Shakur, who was one of the women incarcerated in the House of D in its final days. And she's the mother of Tupac Shakur, and she was pregnant with him while she was incarcerated, right? Yeah, she gets arrested as part of what's called the Panther 21, which is this police conspiracy that the Black Panthers were intending to blow up a number of targets all around New York City. She's one of two women arrested. Uh, The other one is named Joan Bird. Both women were queer. Both women met girlfriends in the house of detention during their incarceration. Afini Shakur was a leader in the Black Panther Party at that point, even though she was only like 20, 21 years old. She, in fact, becomes her own lawyer and is the reason that the Panther 21 got off on all charges because she was so eloquent in prison. And she says that being in prison, she saw the banners of the Gay Liberation Front protesting outside because after Stonewall, there was a meeting held to center the energy of activists who wanted to do something about gay rights. And older gay groups said they didn't want to protest the prison because they didn't want to piss off the cops. And a group of younger activists formed one of the most important LGBTQ organizations of the 1960s and 70s, the Gay Liberation Front. And they formed it to protest the Women's House of Detention in support of the Black Panthers like Afini Shakur and Joan Byrd. And Afini Shakur talks about seeing those banners outside and how that connection helped her to think about the connections between black liberation, women's liberation, and gay liberation. And when she got out of the prison, not only did she connect with Carol Crooks and start a relationship with her, in fact, Tupac Shakur original last name is Crooks because she said Carol was the father. Not only does she connect there, she actually starts connecting with Huey P. Newton, the leader in the Black Panther Party who famously wrote a letter saying that the Black Panther Party's next front was connecting with women's liberation and gay liberation. Afini Shakur and Huey P. Newton arrange for a meeting between them and the gay liberation front at Jane Fonda's apartment 
After that happens, Afini Shakur goes to the Revolutionary People's Convention, the Black Panther Convention, to write a new constitution for America. And she meets with the gay men's workshop and talks to them about how to formulate their demands and how they can work together. Afini Shakur over and over again is connecting black liberation and gay liberation. As a queer black woman activist, she sees the ways in which these things are interconnected. And the early gay liberation movement did too. They protested this prison along with the radical lesbians, the youth against war and fascism, women's groups, all kinds of groups met together to protest this prison in an intersectional way that we don't often think about 1960s liberation movements do. But they really were closely interconnected. Hugh Ryan, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you, Terry. This was wonderful. Hugh Ryan speaking with Terry Gross. He's the author of the new book, The Women's House of Detention, A Queer History of a Forgotten Prison. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberto Shorak, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Joel Wolfram. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm Dave Davies. 